Well, good morning, friends. Do please turn back with me to John's Gospel, chapter 5. And this morning we come to verses 30 to 47. That's page 890 in the church Bibles. So turn to that. If you can keep it open later on, it'll be a great help to you. And there's a little outline on the backs of the order of service. John chapter 5, verse 30. The Lord Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he testifies about me is true. You sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Well, let's pray. You have made known to me the path of life divine. Bliss shall I know at your right hand. Joy from your face will shine. Loving Heavenly Father, you have given us every opportunity to know the joy of your face. And in your love, you are giving us yet one more this morning. So we pray, would you speak and would we hear your voice and know that it is you, our heavenly Father, calling us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what explains the failure of the public ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? 
John's gospel is well underway now, but things are not going the way they should be. It all started, didn't it, in such a beautiful way? A son sent from the love of heaven into a lost, dark world to bring us home. He was introduced in the most hearty, life-affirming way we could hope for. A bridegroom who brings joy who makes vintage wine for his people to feast with. Who wouldn't want a Messiah like that? And yet, by his third sign that we saw just a few weeks ago, the trajectory of this book is set. Jesus' work has been rejected by the Jewish leadership, and the plans for his death are underway. And that response to his work will define the first half of this book until his public ministry draws to a close with the raising of Lazarus. Was it a failure under the sovereignty of God? Well, of course not. It's the response John warned us of right from the start of the book. But even so, it is hard to explain, isn't it? The people God had prepared for two millennia receive their savior in the flesh. He had pity on a desperately broken man. He saved a child. He even came bearing wine. He should be a hero by now. And yet by chapter five, it starts to become clear that he simply is not winning people round to himself. So what went wrong? Maybe God just wasn't clear enough. If only he'd explained better who Jesus was, if only he'd been more convincing. Maybe he just picked the wrong time and the wrong people. First century Jews were just not ready for someone like Jesus. He should have waited for people like us for more enlightened times. And yet all of us know, don't we, decent, enlightened moderns who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. We live with them. We work with them. We gave birth to them. We love them. And it's not as if we haven't made the gospel clear to them. We've introduced them to Jesus as convincingly as we know how. We've shown them everything we've seen. And yet, for whatever reason, they simply aren't being won round. Well, I think that is what this last section of chapter 5 adds to the story. It explains the trajectory the rest of this book will take. It absolutely was not because God wasn't clear enough. In fact, he gave his people every possible opportunity to accept the godness of his son, the clearest, most trustworthy testimony in all creation. And no, it's not that first century Jews were uniquely hard-hearted either, because remember what Jesus told us a little while back? He knows all people. And he sees something inside these people that is true of many of us, if not all of us. Something that corrodes our ability to make a fair, rational judgment like an acid. And so our task this morning is to discover what that is. Jesus is going to remind us of every opportunity that God in his patience and kindness sent us to help us respond to his son. And then from verse 41... He'll show us the reason we squander all of that love, all of that patience. Are there other reasons? Well, yes, probably. 
But for most of us, this one plays a key part. And if we're sitting here today as Christians, and we can see that God by his spirit has overcome this in us, well, it ought to make us incredibly thankful. First then, in verses 30 to 40, let's take one more look at the patience and kindness of God towards each one of us here, the countless opportunities he sent to persuade us to embrace his son. And the key word here is hard to miss, isn't it? Because we get it 11 times in the first half of the passage. Our translation has the noun as testimony and the verb as to bear witness, but it's the same basic words. The point, though, isn't so much the quantity of witness that God has sent to Jesus. The point is the quality. Verse 30 seems to be repeating the thrust of what we got last week. I, the son, can do nothing on my own. But it's more than just a summary of the arguments. It's telling us something about how deeply trustworthy Jesus and his testimony is. How do we know we can trust his judgment, his assessment of the truth? Well, because Jesus Christ is not a corrupt judge. Remember verse 19, God the Son does nothing of his own accord, nothing for his own sake. And so in everything Jesus does, he seeks the will of his Father, not his own. And in case we don't get that, he repeats the same thing in all sorts of ways today. It's not just that Jesus doesn't bear witness about himself for his own sake, but it's that he can't bear witness simply to promote himself. Verse 31 is a strange thing to say, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying things about himself in this gospel all the time. And I don't think he's simply saying there that if he bears witness about himself, his testimony wouldn't be valid. It wouldn't be enough. That is a real thing. It's a principle in Deuteronomy. When God tells us how to run a court case, he says, you can't have someone just stand up and say, I'm innocent because I say so. That is a real Bible principle. Any true claim needs two or three witnesses to stand up in court. And Jesus is going to present us with two or three witnesses. But Look carefully, verse 31 says something stronger than valid, doesn't it? Jesus says, if I were to act like that, it wouldn't be true. If there were some breach in God the Trinity, if God the Son were to take on his human will and then go rogue with Jesus putting himself before the Father, well, then he would no longer be who he has claimed to be. It would no longer be true. He would no longer be God the Son. It's not simply that Jesus doesn't promote himself in anything he does. It's that he cannot. It is not how the Trinity works. And that will become very significant later on when we hear what Jesus has to say about our motivations. And notice, by the way, that right at the top of the passage, Jesus is presented not as the witness but as the judge. Do you see that? It's tempting, I think, to look at this passage as a kind of courtroom drama where all the evidence for Jesus is brought forwards, and we sit here as judge. 
and we pass our verdict on him. But actually, that's not quite what's happening. This is a corruption trial, and it's us, the judges, who are in the dock. And all the evidence that's going to be brought forward is the evidence we have been busily trying to ignore and twist and sweep under the carpet. It's evidence that is now crying out against us if we reject the godness of Jesus. Not evidence, verse 32, that Jesus gives on his own behalf, but the evidence of another. So who is it? Who is the star witness in this case? Well, verse 33 says it's not the one they went looking for. Remember back at the start of the book, the Jewish leaders sent a committee to go and investigate John the Baptist looking for answers. And that was a good place to look, verse 35, because John was a faithful and a hugely popular preacher. For a little while, at least, Israel rejoiced in his light. People loved to listen to him speak, to be dazzled by his brilliance, his gifts, until, of course, he said something that offended them. But no, verse 34, John was not the star witness that Jesus is talking about because Jesus does not need testimony from any man. God the Son does not need defending. He doesn't need reassurance that he's saying the right things or doing the right things. Remember who he lives to please, verse 30? Only God the Father. And he has testimony far greater than any human being can give. So why then did God go to all the trouble of sending John the Baptist into the world to point to Jesus? Well, verse 34, not because Jesus needed that, but because it might help convince some of them so that they might be saved. And that does show us something remarkably kind in God, doesn't it? Think of all the human help that he gives us to believe in his son. Clever apologetics, favorite preachers, evidence that is literally buried beneath our feet that the archaeologists turn up out of the mud year after year. None of that stuff necessary. None of it ultimately can prove that Jesus is God. His testimony stands all by itself. When the dead hear his voice on the last day, they won't need to check Wikipedia to confirm that it is him speaking. His word is self-authenticating. It's enough on its own. And yet God, in his patience and his kindness, still gives us all those other human ways to be reassured, anything that helps. But finally, in verse 36, Jesus does bring out the star witness. Who is it? Who is this mysterious another whose testimony ought to clench the case? And when we zoom out and we look at this chapter as a whole, his identity should be blindingly obvious by now, shouldn't it? The one who's been speaking words of life into this world loud and clear is none other than God the Father himself, the greatest witness you could ever imagine. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I call God. How many times do people say, if only God would show himself, show me he was real, then I'd believe him. Well, it is God the Father whose works 
Jesus has been accomplishing and they have been rejecting right from the start of this section of the book. When God the Father healed a desperate man by the pool, he did it the way he does all things. He did it through his beloved son and he did it to testify to him. When God the Father, we were told, gives life to the dead and he judges the world, he will do it the way he does all things through his beloved son. And he'll do it, verse 23 said, so that we will honor Jesus. It's testimony to him. So it's not saying here that Jesus' works are one witness. And then verse 37, God the Father is another witness. He's saying what he's been saying all the way through the arguments. Through every single thing that Jesus does, God the Father is working and God the Father is speaking. And that ought to give us tremendous confidence, shouldn't it? How do we persuade our friends that Jesus is God? Well, he says, just look at me. Look at him with them. Look at his words. Look at everything he does. Look at his firmness. Look at his love, his courage. Look at the people you know whose lives he's transformed. I cannot explain the people in this room that he has taken from death to life, like he told us last week, in any other way. It's a supernatural work of God the Father through the Son. Above all, look at his cross. Just look at the cross with them. It wouldn't be how we would do it, would it? But that is the wisdom of God the Father. Every moment that you look at Jesus, you're hearing heaven itself say, this is my son who I love, the one I've been sending from all eternity. You can trust him. Trust your life and soul to him. He's convincing, isn't he? His life is convincing. It's why just two minutes face-to-face -face with Jesus in the Bible can sometimes turn around someone's whole destiny because you are hearing the most persuasive and truthful testimony in all creation. God the Father himself bearing witness to his Son patiently, patiently, patiently. God gave his people here every possible opportunity to respond in faith to Jesus. And yet, verse 37, here comes the shock. It turns out that this people who God has been speaking to patiently for two millennia had never actually heard his voice. And they've never seen his form. Because right now, the form of the invisible God is right in front of them. And the voice of God is speaking to them in the flesh and they don't recognize it. If they had ever truly listened to God's words, if they'd ever truly known him, then they would have believed the son he sent. That's what he's saying. Isn't verse 39 just the most heartbreaking sentence you've ever read? You search the scriptures, the scriptures, because rightly you believe that in them you have eternal life. But when the one they're all about comes to you bringing that life, he's a complete stranger.
I'm sure I've fessed up to you before about how I misread the Narnia stories as a child, but I loved those books. I searched those books. I read them inside out and back to front. Once when I was about eight, and my parents absolutely insisted I went to sleep, I set fire to my bed by hiding the lamp under the duvet and then falling asleep. I searched those books. And yet the result of all that searching was that I decided to become a vet. <laughs> Not a Christian bought by the blood of Aslan, no, a vet who could play with talking animals. I missed the point. Now I grew up eventually and God was kind. And now I think, how could I have missed it? How could I? But my devotion to Narnia was absolutely nothing compared to the devotion of many Jewish people to God's word. Some of History's greatest heroes, at least in my slightly weird books, are a group of Hebrew ninjas called the Masoretes, the scholars who preserved the text of the Old Testament for us. They would literally search every jot and tittle. Some of them could tell you how many words should be in every book of the Old Testament so that they could count them all up carefully and find the halfway point. And if there was one word too many on either side or one word too few, They'd know something had gone wrong in the copying, and the whole thing should start again. We owe those Masoretes an awful lot. They protected the Bible for us because they loved it. And yet for all of that deep love and respect for every word of the Hebrew Bible, Jesus said they never actually listened to any of it. Because somehow, verse 39, they missed the one that every single word of the Old Testament is all about. His voice they never heard. And so the word became flesh for them. And they refused to come for life to him. The saddest story ever told. Witness number one, John the Baptist, a wonderfully gifted human preacher, Witness number two, God the Father crying out from heaven through the life and works of Jesus. Witness number three, every page of scripture, the written word given to us for one purpose, to lead us to the living word. God in his patience and kindness really has given us every opportunity, hasn't we, to respond to the truth. And so why then? Why do we squander it all? Well, that's what Jesus tells us in verses 41 to 47. And I've got to be honest with you, it wasn't quite what I expected. It seemed a bit of a bolt from the blue, the way this argument turns. It took me a fair while to see how this last paragraph adds anything to what has been quite a long and complex chapter. But once the penny finally dropped, I think it actually ties everything together. It starts with what seems like a slightly random thing to say, but it's such a John's gospel sort of thing to say that we can easily just blow over it. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from man. Now, why does Jesus say that? It is essentially what he's been saying, isn't it? Right from verse 19, I, God the Son, do nothing without the Father. Verse 30, I seek nobody's will but the Father's. And now verse 41, I seek nobody's glory but the Father's. The whole wonder of the Trinity 
is that God is radically self-sufficient. He needs nothing outside of himself. And so as he said in verse 26, God the Son, just like God the Father, has life all within himself. He depends on nobody for that life. But it's bigger than that. God the Trinity has love all within himself. From eternity, we were shown a Father who loved the Son in the joy of the Spirit. God was perfectly loved before there was ever a creature to love him back. And that means he can love in an entirely selfless way, needing nothing in return. And in the same way here, this God who is all life within himself and all love within himself is all perfectly glorious within himself. He cannot receive any glory from his creatures. It's his already, infinitely his. All we can do is show and praise all that glory that's already there. So whether we accept Jesus or not, whether we listen to what God says about him or not, whether we claim to make him our Lord and Savior or not, it doesn't add any glory to him or take any glory away from him. His glory comes from someone else entirely. Now, Jesus is telling us this for a reason, isn't he? It's not just a remote, abstract lesson in theology. Listen to how it carries on. I'll read it from the NIV because it actually preserves the Greek a little better here. I do not receive glory from mankind, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in you. Jesus is drawing a contrast, isn't he? It's a contrast between where he looks for glory and where we look for it. I know, verse 43, that loving God is not the thing that matters most to you, deep down, because I came in his name and you refused me. You dishonored the son he loves. What a shocking thing that is to say to a deeply religious crowd. You do not love the God you think you worship. Second, I think, in offensiveness, only to verse 46, you do not believe the Bibles. Your whole life has been ordered around. You don't believe Moses. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me, the one he was all about. And so on the last day, the very Old Testament you have set your hope on is going to be held up in court as proof that you were never really listening out of a love for God the Father. And here's why. When it came down to an absolute choice, which in the end it always will, you cared more about what other people thought and what other people said then you cared about what God thinks and what God says. Do you see that? Look at verse 43. I came in my Father's name. There's the same point again. I came seeking nothing for myself but only my Father. And you couldn't understand it. But when others come to you in their own name, promoting their own agenda, you lot fall all over them. 
If John the Baptist had stuck to using his gifts to promote John the Baptist International Ministries, Inc., he would have stayed on top of the world because people like that out for themselves will never say anything that the crowd doesn't want to hear. Poor, naive old John the Baptist, though, he kept on saying true things that people didn't like. He even had the audacity to go for the killer. God cares about who you sleep with, Herod. Imagine that. And it trashed his brand, didn't it? But John was one of those very unusual human beings who didn't give a stuff about what people thought of him. What does it say about us, though, that in Jesus' assessment, at least, when people come promoting themselves, we fall all over them? Surely it says we are just the same as they are. We get people like that. We receive those sorts of people because we want people who flatter us, praise us. And verse 44, that is why, humanly speaking, no matter how persuasive the evidence is, we will never, ever believe in Jesus Christ. Not without what he called earlier on a whole new birth. Our whole nature needs to be turned off and switched back on again, reset. Because the truth is, verse 44, we care far more about what other people say and think of us than we care about what God says and thinks about us. Human glory matters more. And so long as that is true, we just won't ever be able to stand out against the crowd and receive his son. Think yourself back into this scene, zoom out from the weeds, picture that Sabbath afternoon once again, a lifelong cripple is walking around. It was as if that giant alien ship had landed on the Royal Mile and they were all there tut-tutting about the parking rules, ignoring the big glaring thing that had just happened. Why? Because the moment one of them says what they're all thinking, wait a minute, Jesus has just done what only God has the right and power to do. Maybe we should hear him out. The moment one of them says something like that, everyone around him, everyone that he's faithfully gone to synagogue with week after week, will either pick up stones to throw at him or at the very best cast him out and never speak to him again. God has made himself so clear, not just to them, but to so many of us, to the people we know and love. Why won't they welcome his son? Well, here is the painful truth. It's because our need for human affirmation utterly corrodes our judgment. We're not trustworthy when it comes to looking at the evidence. doesn't matter how clear it is. The fundamental heart-level reason that we don't become a Christian is that we crave human praise, not heaven's praise. And so it is just too dangerous to stand out against the crowd. We cannot risk Jesus embarrassing us. 
Chris Arash puts it very well, we will stay in the safe world where each is out to do the best for himself or herself. We understand that world. Are there other reasons? Of course there are, but isn't that where so many of the people we know and love prefer to stay? In the safe world, the normie world. Because our need for human affirmation corrodes our ability to judge. Now, do you see how that ties everything together? It's why Jesus is so deeply trustworthy. Because he is not like that. His judgment is just, verse 30, because he's not out to do his own will. He doesn't need our praise. And so he doesn't come on a mission to flatter us. He comes on a mission to save. And we can trust that when he speaks, God in his love is telling us the truth. There is nobody else in all creation whose voice you can trust the way you can trust Jesus. So where does that leave us then this morning? It is very sobering, isn't it? To think about those we love who are on the outside, close to Christian things, and yet never quite throwing in their weight. It's not a case of simply finding the right killer apologetic argument and laying out the evidence. Because the best testimony in all creation is right here waiting for them. And they cannot listen to it fairly. And so we need to pray that God, this God of extraordinary patience and kindness, doesn't simply give them more opportunities. We need to pray he works a work of mercy in their hearts, renews their wills. And I suspect that most of us, most of us who know and love Jesus by his grace, will want to keep praying that prayer for ourselves, won't we? This has been a long, hard look at what his mercy had to overcome in each of us. And yet I know that I still care far too much about the glory I get from other people. And Jesus' warning is that that can be a very dangerous thing. It can stop me listening properly and honestly to what God actually says. It can stop me looking for his praise. It can stop me from standing out against the crowd when Jesus says something that is hard, and I know that embracing it all the way is going to be yet another reason for other people to look down on me. It can stop me marveling at the wonderful works Jesus is doing in his world through his church. That need for human glory, it can even make us sneer at the works of Jesus when it's not done our way. Isn't that what happened here? Sneering at Jesus' works. And so I need this God who has been so incredibly patient and kind with me already to get to work on my motivations and my fears and to keep on growing a love of him in my heart a love that's going to push out that need for other approval and that lets me listen honestly to the words of his glorious son.
So if you're anything like me, why don't we pray for that work together? Let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, you have been so, so patient and kind with each one of us. You've spoken so clearly about who Jesus is and why we need him. You've given us so many helps to let us listen and trust what you've said. And without that incredible patience, many of us would never be here. And so we praise you for a savior who is trustworthy and for a father who is kind. And we pray that you would grow in us a deeper love for you, a longing for your praise that more and more weans us off from our need for others to think well of us. Help us overcome that need, Father, so that we can listen honestly to every word that you have to say about Jesus, your son, and so that we can respond to it with joy and without shame. For we ask it all in his glorious name. Amen.